Welcome to the January Extra edition of the Jodcast. But just before we get the main show started, we're going to ask you the question that we asked you last month on the Jodcast, and that is, can you escape from Ian Morrison? Of course, the answer is no, because he presents the night sky every month. However, we're talking about the asteroid Ian Morrison. Can you escape from it just by jumping? The answer after the show. The Jodcast, and yes, we did actually get a birthday card with David Alt, Edward Boyce, Stuart Lowe, and Nick Rattenbury. The Jodcast, January Extra Edition. Hello and welcome to the January Extra issue of the Jodcast, and once again, Happy New Year to all of our listeners out there.、Uh, once again, I'm joined by Stuart and Nick. Hello, guys. Hi, Dave. Hello, Dave. Hello, everyone. And again, yes, Happy New Year. And we have a corker of a show for you. This issue, we have an interview with Alan Chapman of the University of Oxford about Richard Proctor, and we, of course, get your astronomy questions answered in Ask an Astronomer. But first, we've got news of another survey, and don't worry, this one isn't Jodcast related. No, this is from the British Astronomical Association、um, campaign for dark skies. Who are conducting a UK-wide survey on light nuisance and light pollution-related problems? Can somebody can somebody explain what the campaign for dark skies is?、Uh, if you live in London, like I do, then you'll know what it's like to look up into the night sky and see absolutely nothing. Well, you might be able to see Orion if you're very lucky, but you can't see the the decent night skies that really you particularly want to. The campaign for dark skies is、uh, a group which wants to cut down on unnecessary light pollution, so that the skies will once again become dark and not filled with the light from cities beneath. And the key point there is unnecessary light pollution, because I think everyone appreciates there is a need for lighting to make sure that everything's safe and you can see your way down the street. But it's the unnecessary lights that are the the nuisance. They're the things that are a waste of electricity. Just lighting up the sky for no good reason. So that's that's something of what the campaign for dark skies is all about. Now they have a survey, a UK-wide survey on light nuisance and light pollution-related re- problems. I mean, like everyone who is affected by light pollution and would like to see darker skies within cities and towns, to complete the survey. Now we're putting a link to this on the show notes, so please. Go along to our website at www.jodcast.net and fill out that survey. All right, now from the、uh, dark sky survey to your feedback to us about the Jodcast. We've received a number of emails,、um, and it seems that several people have been lucky recipients of MP3 players from Santa over Christmas, so they were able to tune into us and listen to the Jodcast over the holidays. Many thanks to Robert Nanelli, Gaz Bennett, who congratulates us on the new grant from STFC, Steve Bithell, who writes that Ian Morrison could read the telephone directory and make it sound interesting. Perhaps we should try that someday. To Robert Russell, who says that we have wonderful content but terrible audio control. To Francis Day, who I think takes the prize for the most interesting pastime while listening to the Jodcast. She writes that she listens to the Jodcast while driving and making corsets. We can only assume that、uh, she doesn't do these things at the same time. So, many thanks to Frances for、uh, her comments.、Uh, thanks also to Bob Faulkner who pointed out a mistake in the show notes. Stuart has been duly whipped and flogged.
to Carlo Prestak from Croatia, who likes the intros. And uh, so thank you very much for that, and I apologize if I mispronounced your name. Uh, thanks also to Alexander Hobson, who likes everything that we do, and likes to sit in his car to listen to the end, uh, even if uh, he's waiting in there for at least ten minutes. Mark Parker had a short download, which we suspect is due to our web server not responding during the download. So if it happens again, and if you find that uh, your copy of the Jodcast cuts off in the middle or near the end, just please try downloading it again, and that should fix the problem. This is a problem that uh, Robert H. Nunali Jr. from Dallas has written on the wall of the Facebook group. Now, he says... The interview with Dr. Anna Watts about neutron stars is very interesting. She manages to make her explanations easy to follow without sounding at all condescending to the le less expert listeners such as myself. Now, he had a problem with the complete show MP3 ending at the end of her interview, but he's going to keep on downloading. Now, Robert Nanali has actually written us a song. He has. He's taken clips from our December Extra issue of the Jodcast and he's remixed them with some other Creative Commons licensed audio and he's made us, yeah, the Jod song. So the Jodcast has been remixed? Yes. And we'll put a link to the Jod song in our show notes. And if anybody else wants to take uh, output from the Jodcast and remix it in some creative and interesting way, then please do feel free. We're covered by the Creative Commons license, which means that you're free to download, remix, and do anything you like with the Jodcast, uh, so long as you credit us. He also mentions that uh, the theme song, which we were, we've been discussing recently, the theme song is rather charmingly jaunty in a Second World re Reverent Cocktail Jazz Ensemble way. And just finishing off with the Facebook wall posts, uh, Bill Kenway said the interview was spot on, an excellent show as usual, and glad to hear that your funding is secure as well. Okay, Dave, I'll move on to the iTunes reviews. We had reviews from Gethin, from Gaz Bennett, from Vbloke, Godzilla 2007, Doc Kin, Shadow X3, Rapid Eye, Zades from Austra the Australia iTunes store, Headless SP, Masha from Dorset, who said, Great show, guys and gals. Thoroughly enjoy the Jodcast, even the wacky intros. What are you guys on? And also a review from TTFN Rob. So thank you very much to all the people who've reviewed us on iTunes. Of course, you can always send us feedback via the website at www.jodcast.net. Nick, you have the postcards? Yes, indeed. We have received our first American postcard from Joe Willis from Dayton, Ohio. So thank you very much, Joe, and everybody else. Please do send us postcards. It's fantastic to receive them. And also, we have received, I think, our first birthday card from Jason Hill saying, Happy second birthday, because indeed, as of the mid-January episode, the Jodcast is two years old. But from our first transatlantic postcard to the first transatlantic astronomer, we've got an interview now with Alan Chapman of the University of Oxford. Nick, do you want to tell us all about it? Yes, we caught up with Dr. Alan Chapman at the Red Lion Inn in Goostree a little town near Jodrell Bank Observatory, where he was about to give a talk about Richard Proctor. And his talk was for the Macclesfield Astronomical Society, and they kindly let us interrupt their pre-lecture dinner, and this is what he had to say. So you've been recently uh, looking at the history of uh, a certain Victorian astronomer. Uh, yes, this is Richard Anthony Proctor, who was an extraordinary Victorian figure, born in 1837, 
and I suppose was a kind of early form of Patrick Moore. Really? Insofar that he was a journalist, he was a man who was particularly concerned with passing astronomy on to a wider lay audience, and had a multiple body of books to his reputation, and was probably the first international astronomical lecturer, because he was highly provocative, and in that respect he was not really like Patrick. He, he made lots and lots of enemies in the Royal Astronomical Society. <laughs> and in 1873, things got a little bit too warm, and he decided to embark on what was probably the first ever global lecture tour for astronomy which, of course, included crossing the United States, uh, Australasia, literally lecturing his way around the world to paid venues. And on his, one, of his, one of his expeditions doing this, he actually met his second wife after he'd been widowed um, on the way back to England, a, a lady called Sally Duffield Proctor. And rather curiously enough, Sally Duffield Proctor actually outlived him by half a century. And, you know, she ended up living in Altrincham. Oh, so right nearby. Very strange that <laughs> you had this American lady. She came from Orange Lake County, Florida. Yeah. She was herself a very, very keen amateur astronomer and very serious astronomer. Um, and having lost her husband, met Proctor on the ship back to England. Um, they married, and uh, they actually lived very internationally. They sometimes lived in America, sometimes lived in Ireland, and, of course, when Proctor himself died suddenly in 1881... She came and settled in Altingham. What a remarkable, remarkable bloke, even to start off with. I mean, they're, they're well, she's an astonishing lady. And when you bear in mind too that, of course, Proctor had a daughter, and of course, his daughter um, Mary Proctor by his first wife, mm. and his second wife Sally Duffield was actually not much older than his daughter. And the two women actually became good friends, and they lived together part of the time until, until in fact, Mrs. Proctor married a second time, and then then they lived together. Mm. But then. Mary Proctor actually died in 1957 hmm. at the age of 95, which was the year in which Jodrell Bank was founded, Sputnik went up, and the sky at night had its first broadcast. So this Victorian lady, born in 1862, actually could have watched the sky at night and could have seen Sputnik. <laughs> now, I think that is quite an extraordinary continuity. There's a remarkable set of, of, of timelines, isn't there? There is indeed. And when you have long-lived people... Now, of course, Proctor himself died of fever, only sadly in his, in his, his mid-50s. Um, but his daughter was 95, and his wife was, I think, about 90 when mm. she died. Um, these are remarkable. These are remarkable lives. I mean, the, well, the lifetimes for for the period living out of the Victorian period. Absolutely. Bearing in mind too, of course, that his his first wife, of course, died when she was in her thirties. I think second wife in her eighties. And in those days, you tended to either, I suppose, on the whole, go youngish, or in many cases, have a very very long crack of the whip. Mm. Um, and of course, a lot of Victorian astronomers lived long lives. There's no doubt about that. I mean, people like uh, Thomas William Webb, who's another great popularizer. Um, was in his 80s. And, of course, the, in many ways, Proctor's great Irish rival, uh, Sir Robert Staywell Ball, who was Professor of Astronomy at Trinity Dublin, and himself was a tremendous, exuberant character. I mean, he lived well into his 70s and was lecturing into his 70s as well, indeed, mm. in 1913. And so, you know, you get a lot of these people who are very actively engaged for half a century or more. Yes, yes certainly true, I think, with um, certainly people who are engaged in scientific work who are, you know, head towards what we would call retirement age and just want to keep on going. Because just keep on going. And, of course, in those days, there was no such thing as retirement age. No. Uh, I mean, basically, you kept at it until you either dropped or you became so 
basically dysfunctional that they gave you a large pension and they put a deputy, but yes. they often let you keep the title, mm-hmm. uh, even into extreme old age. But one thing, too, was very central with Victorian popular astronomy, and that's the growth of the mass media. And we think of, let's say this, doing a recording today, as modern mass media. The Victorians had their own exploding equivalent. It was the magazine trade, Mm. the railways, which, of course, got people and ideas distributed rapidly across the country, the electric telegraph, commercially produced photographs, and, of course, by the 1880s, photographs reproduced in books and magazines. And so, literally, you have an exploding media and if you were a popular astronomy lecturer or a popular anything lecturer, whatever, and there was a big, big lecture yes. industry in Victorian England and everything from the life of Nelson to life on Mars and uh, all sorts of stuff. Um, and it was backed up by these often one-night stand lecturers. Yes. You know, you, you, uh, Liverpool one night, Manchester the next night, Leeds the next and often getting very handsome fees. There was a huge appetite, though, from the Victorian oh, yes. public for anything scientific or Tremendous. anything that would, it would increase people's, I guess what we would call general knowledge. There was an amazing appetite. There were public lectures in the big universities, Absolutely. and they were packed all the time. And you were getting this particularly going around people like Ball and Proctor, who were the two, like I said, the two great rivals until Proctor died very suddenly. Um, nothing unlikely to get, let's say, 3,000 packed into a lecture hall. Oh, yeah. 3,000. And, you know, you take on, let's say, a theatre, or let's say Manchester Town Hall, yes. or somewhere like that, and you could pack them in. We can't imagine having a public lecture on, uh, on, on physics or, or chemistry these yeah. days, you know, for 3,000 people. Absolutely. <laughs> you, you have a, on often what we're seeing to as very, very um, topical subjects, let's mm. say around the time of the Mars opposition of 1877, were there really living beings on Mars? Yes. Was it possible that these lines which people were thinking they could see on Mars were indicating that there was a, an intelligent civilization there, speculating from that? Was this a sort of super race, bringing the water from the pole to the arid deserts, and of course, by the time that you get to H.T. Wells, would they invade? Yes, of course. And you know, all <laughs> of this is, is in the air, and this is 120, 30, 40 years ago. Mars was a particular interest of Proctor, wasn't it? Pardon? Mars was a particular Ooh, interest actually, of Proctor. And of course, he determined the rotation rate in the early 1860s, mm. and of course, he does a number of key things which are. Very, very serious scientifically. I mean, one was the rotation rate of Mars. The other one, of course, too, was his major book on Saturn, which, of course, established his, his reputation. He was a fine observer. He was Cambridge-educated, a very, very... He was a professionally trained astronomer. And also, too, he'd worked for the great German astronomer Argelander. I think it was Bonn. Mm. And, of course, had plotted 324,179 of Argelander's stars. And, of course, this was a colossal geometrical exercise. Yes. And he was a geometer, because, of course, in those days, if you read, let's say, well, especially astronomy at Cambridge or physics at Cambridge, it was not what you do today. It wouldn't be deep sky, anything Mm -hmm. like that. It would be celestial geometry. Mm. It would be the working out of all of the intricacies of Newton's Principia, and, of course, you would leave, if you had, as he did, a good degree, you would leave with a massive knowledge of mathematical geometry. And so, hence, of course, when you're working from a German observatory, taking data from a German observatory, and you're putting it into a, a good form which is comprehensible in terms of tables, then you have a, it's, it's a mathematician's job. But what he next does is interpret these star scatterings because, in many ways, he was interested in cosmology, Proctor. And he started to find that when he examined his plotted positions for Argelander's third of a million stars, they didn't form a uniform or homogeneous spread. Mm. They tended to be in thick areas or 
places by them weren't very many. Now, of course, this was an idea later taken up by Jakob Kapten in the early part of the 20th century, the idea that in the universe, stars formed streams mm. or bands. And, of course, Proctor is the first person to suggest this in the early 1860s. He was also a theorist, too. He didn't just oh, observe yes, stars. He, he thought, well, why, why do they Absolutely. form these? And, of course, one of the reasons I think why he did so much theoretical work is not actually holding an appointment and not being a university observatory director, as he would have loved to have been. What he does is rework other people's data, and he is very, very good at doing this. But also, too, what fascinates me with him, he was interested in the history of astronomy, and he tries to date the constellations. Now, in some essays he published in the 1870s, he was asking the question, where do the constellations come from? How old are they? And can we determine their dates? Now, of course, it was known at that time from the translation of Chaldean materials, which, of course, was just coming to be cracked, as you could understood some of the very ancient Middle Eastern languages by about 1870, that there were astronomical stories in these legends. Some of them may even have been Indian in their derivation. Hmm. And these are the constellations that we would recognise today. Oh, yes, today. Cassiopeia, Perseus, uh, Andromeda. Hmm. In particular, that three. And he finds what he claims are cognates in Sanskrit stories for the Cassiopeia, Perseus, Cepheus, Andromeda. The same uh, characters. In, same characters, hmm. in slightly different names. And one suggestion was, if they were, let's say, North Indian, or what would be mo modern-day Pakistan uh, in northern India, then you go up into the Persian Gulf, you're into the Euphrates... And you're into the Babylonian world. Mm. Now, of course, this was an established trading route yes. anyway, archaeologically. Why cannot ideas pass the same way? Yes. He wants to know when they were doing this. And he works particularly on the constellations that would have been visible at about 30 degrees north above the equator, which is basically the Mesopotamian desert mm. or, or, or mm. where, where the shepherds would have been. Now, what he says, you imagine you have these chaps sitting watching their sheep at night and they're looking at the constellations and they're making up stories and um, asterisms in the sky. Now, you have the one he particularly is interested in, Argo Navis, right. Argo the ship. The ship yes. He says, look at the ship now, and it's diagonal to the horizon. Mm -hmm. And for 30 degrees north, some of it would be below the horizon in brilliantly clear conditions, and others would be up in the wrong way. He said, if they were calling that a ship... They would have called it at a time when it seemed to just glide over the horizon, right. rising and setting and being fully upright. Therefore, how can we determine the age of the constellation? Try calculating from the precession of the equinoxes. When would that constellation have been upright, as seen from 30 degrees north, about 2170 BC? Ah, that fits. So, absolutely. So he's claiming that the constellations are about 4,000 years old, about 2,000 along BC. Because we, we like to think, well, we think, well, we, we are happy with the names of the constellations coming, you know, or connected with Greek mythology, the, the, the various characters from, from the stories that we know from Greek mythology, but we're now talking about predating that by a substantial Probably could amount. be. Probably could be. I mean, he mentions names from, from contemporary Sanskrit scholarship um, of where Cassiopeia seems to be corresponding to something called Cassiop, which, of course, is has a, a, mm. a parallel to it, mm. and an Andromed, 
Now, of course, where the ultimate roots are, it's very, very hard to be sure. But, of course, what was happening in Proctor's time in the, the latter part of the 19th century, you were having a massive amount of scholarship into the ancient Middle Eastern and Indian languages. People like Max Muller in Oxford, of course, he was bringing out a tremendous new understanding of, of ancient Indian culture and so on. And he's picking up astronomical stuff that's coming out of these traditions. And we would call this an interdisciplinary I suppose he was study. <laughs> Absolutely. And, of course, he didn't read these languages himself, but, of course, they were becoming available in, in good quality, either English or German translations, mm-hmm. and, because he read German. Um, and how, so, did, how did Proctor get in contact with or, or make the connection between what he was looking at and the, the constellations and his interest in dating these constellations he, with the, the stories coming from these guys who were well, studying course, these languages? Uh, what he claims, of course, is he mentions a number of Sanskrit scholars, a number of Germans particularly, of course, who were translating Sanskrit documents, and he cites a number of his key sources where he gets these from. He obviously is familiar with the modern stories or the Greek stories of them, and then suddenly realises that he seemed to have much earlier cognates. Mm. Now, this isn't for every constellation, but he mentions particularly the Cassiopeia story, the Cassiopeia Andromeda story, as having what seem to be parallels. Now, of course, whether that's the constellations that we speak of today, we don't know. Right. It's just the stories from India. Yes. But, of course, it does seem a related body of tales. Yes. And he thinks that these may have been perhaps brought up the, the Euphrates River, get into the Babylonian world, then enter Babylonian mythology. And, of course, we know the Babylonian mythology through Greek material taken on board from, well, a variety of people like Pythagoras and Thales and, and people like that who then bring it into the Western tradition. And, of course, Ptolemy, who then puts together his 48 classic constellations from Babylonian sources. Did any other contemporary of Proctor do similar sort of work, or people who followed Proctor, did they... Oh, quite a lot. Uh, It became quite an industry, actually. Um, I mean, it's why the history of astronomy in some ways starts at this kind of period, and you start to get people seriously interested in ancient documents, ancient languages, you get the translation of the cuneiform texts from the Middle East, Egyptian material had been translated half a century before that. And, of course, work on Sanskrit. Uh, Sanskrit was was already a read language. It was never a lost language. But, of course, what starts to happen, it starts to enter much more clearly into Western awareness. And, of course, many of the Sanskrit stories then have these these sort of lovely parallels. What is the modern interpretation of Proctor's work now? Uh, I think some of it would be considered, obviously, as limited by the sources available to him at the time. But his method of trying to actually date cultural events, um, I think would be classed as still very, very interesting. There's no doubt about that. People like him are not being studied by modern historians. They, wh- why? For, for what I reason? I think so many modern historians of science frankly waste their time in what I call deconstructed criticism and, and basically uh, nonsensical theoretical projects and often ignore looking at real-life working figures. Such as Proctor? As, as Proctor and many, many other people in the, in, in the history of astronomy. Hopefully things will change. I hope so, because to me, the history of science, like science itself, is driven by data, it's driven by information, it's driven by theories which are based on, on facts. It's not based on pluck a theory from the air and see what we can apply it to, and how does it connect with some piece of French literary criticism or something like that, <laughs> <laughs> which sadly is all too common in the history of science. Since science is data-driven and... and you know, of course, there's connections with theory, but you have to explain what you observe and what you see. Absolutely. I'm sure that's the way it will go. The two will have to work very, very closely together. Thank you very, very much indeed. It's been a great time. pleasure. Thank, Thank you. you. And a happy great. new year to everybody. So there you go, a fascinating story about a fascinating man.
Yes, thank you very much, Nick and Alan. So, uh, let's move on then to Ask an Astronomer. And this issue, we've got Nick talking to Edward Boyce. Okay, and now it's time for Ask an Astronomer. So thank you very much again to Ed Boyce for coming in and answering your questions. Yes, oh, it's good to come in and, and do this. First question is from Mike Van Voren again, and he asks, which direction is our solar system moving within our galaxy? Which way is it? Up, down, left, right, north, south, east, west. How do we decide which way is the solar system moving within our galaxy? Right. To talk about the solar system's motion within the galaxy, I'll have to quickly go over the shape of the galaxy. So the galaxy, the Milky Way, has a big, roughly spherical halo of dark matter. So this big sphere of dark matter, and that has a diameter of at least 600,000 light years. It might even go out a bit further. Now, in the middle of that big sphere of dark matter, there is a disk of stars, and that has a diameter of 150,000 light years, and it's a thickness of about 10,000 light years, so sort of quite a thin, flat disk of stars. And the sun is part of that disk of stars, it's inside them, about 25,000 light years out from the centre. And the whole disk is spinning with respect to the universe, and the sort of rotation speed varies at different places in the disk, but at the sun's location, 25,000 light years out from the centre of the disk, on average the stars and the gas are all spinning around at 220 kilometres per second. Now, relative to the nearby objects, uh, the Sun and the solar system have a little bit of extra motion, so not everything in the disk is moving at exactly the same speed and in exactly the same direction. So relative to that average, uh, the Sun is actually rotating a little bit faster or revolving a little bit faster, you know, spinning around the centre with respect to the centre in the same direction as everything else, but just a little bit faster. And it's also moving a little bit inwards at the moment, a little bit closer to the galactic centre and a little bit upwards, so if you can imagine the mid-plane of the disk, so sort of the long, thin disk, and um, the sun's moving a little bit further away from the middle of the disk. This is all respect to a lot of stuff, you know, very, very yeah. close to us. Yes, and yeah, so this is with respect to the portion of the disk that's close to us, and so all of the stars, and yes, in our part of the disk that are all rotating together. The sun has this slight extra motion. With respect to the average of, yeah, with, of stuff near to us. Yes, that's right. And with respect. So we've been, you know, with respect to the disk as a whole. Hmm. And so uh, the total speed of moving at is um, 16.5 kilometres per second. And so every year the whole solar system moves about 52 million kilometres with respect to the other parts of the galaxy nearby. And that's about a third of the distance between the Earth and the Sun. So you can imagine as the Earth goes around the Sun, um, one year later it's come back to, say, the same point in the solar system, but it's actually moved, the whole solar system is moved by about a third of the Earth-Sun distance hmm. with respect to everything else in the galaxy. So I described those distances or those directions with respect to the disk, the overall disk of the galaxy. It's a bit trickier to put that in terms of, you know, north, south, east and west and up and down on the Earth. And that's because the compass directions and up and down actually point in different directions in space as the Earth spins. So you can imagine if you're sitting at one location on the Earth and you look east at sunrise, you'll see the sun there. And so you'll be looking directly at the sun, you know, along some direction in space. Now imagine 12 hours later, um, you go out and it's sunset, so the Earth is spun around through 180 degrees. Suddenly if you look east, you're now looking directly away from the sun. You're looking in exactly the opposite direction. So you can't say, oh, well, you know, this particular direction in space that the Earth is moving corresponds to north or south or east or west, because... You know, as the Earth as the Earth spins, that one direction in space 
you know, actually is actually pointing in a different direction or our compass directions are pointing in a different direction. And so if you want to match up some particular direction in space to compass directions and up and down, uh, that will change depending on where you are on the Earth and what time it is. What I can say is that that overall direction of the solar system's motion through the galaxy uh, points towards a spot in the constellation of Hercules, and the coordinates are right ascension 17 hours 48 minutes and declination positive 28 degrees in one minute. So you can look up that point on a star chart or plug it into some planetarium program. And say, we're going that way. Yeah, say we're going that way. And it's, um, but it also means that, you know, if you put that into a planetarium program, you could say that, well, at this particular time in this particular place, those sky coordinates correspond to a particular direction and height. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I briefly, briefly tried that, that on midday in Manchester, um, England, on midday 15th of January, that point was actually quite high in the sky. It was in the south-southwest and up about 70 or 80 degrees above the horizon. Hmm. And, you know, I could have gotten, made it more precise, you know, if I played around with it a bit more. But, you know, so you could imagine then that a few hours after midday, if you got to 2 p.m., then that, that particular point in the sky would have become, oh, that, that one spot in space would have been lower in the sky, would have been further to the west, lower down, closer to the horizon, and so on. Very good. Thank yes. you very much for that one. Next question is, are we moving toward or away from our nearest solemn neighbour? And he gives us uh, that our nearest solar neighbour is Sirius. I don't think that's right in the first yes. instance. <laughs> yes, well, so actually, the I mean, Sirius is the brightest star in the sky because it is quite close to us. It's not the very closest star in the, to, the, to our sun. That would be Proxima Centauri mm. and Alpha Centauri, a sort of a triple star system where you have two very close stars, which are form Alpha Centauri and then Proxima Centauri, a very small star orbiting around those two. They're about twice as close to us as Sirius is. But I actually looked up the data for Sirius because that's what Mike asked about. And um, so Sirius is actually moving a bit closer to the sun, but it is right at the moment, but it's also moving sideways with respect to the sun. So, uh, you know, it has a, there's an overall relative speed between Sirius and the sun of 18.3 kilometers per second. But Sirius isn't coming straight at us. It's coming at an angle of 65.5 degrees away from straight at us. <laughs> so, you know, it's, getting closer, but it's also, you know, sort of shearing off to the side by quite a lot. Great. Well, many thanks to Mike for asking us those questions, and many thanks again to Edward Boyce for answering them. You're welcome, Nick. And once again, if anybody out there has any questions that they've always wanted answering about astronomy, cosmology, astrophysics, etc., do please send them to us, and we will answer them for you. So do go to www.jodcast.net and send us your questions using the contact page there. And while you're on the website, you can also check out our archive of all our past shows. And we've also got the Astronomy Media Player, which has a selection of the best astronomy podcasts from all over the world. So go and check those out while you're waiting for your latest Jodcast fix. Coming up next month is the annual AstroFest, which is being held in Kensington Town Hall down in London. You will find representatives of the Jodcast there in our Jodcast t-shirts. It'll be me and Stuart... Tim and Ian will all be there. So if you want to come along and say hello or be interviewed, just come and find us. So that's the 8th and 9th of February, Kensington Town Hall, Astrofest. So I'm afraid that brings the January extra issue of the Jodcast to an end. But don't worry, we will be back in February with more news and interviews that you've come to expect. And of course, the night sky with Ian Morrison. So until then, it's thanks to Alan Chapman and to Edward Boyce. 
And of course, thanks to you all for downloading and listening to us. Don't forget that survey about light pollution in the UK. If you could do that before the 25th of January, we'd be very grateful. So until the beginning of February, that's it from us. Take care, and we'll see you soon. Bye. Goodbye, everybody. Okay, so before the show, I asked whether we can escape from the asteroid Ian Morrison. So to answer the question, let's first work out the escape velocity of the asteroid Ian Morrison, which is eight kilometers across. The escape velocity depends on the mass of the asteroid, but we don't know what that is. However, if we assume Ian Morrison has a similar density to the asteroid Ceres, that's about twice that of water, then the escape velocity from the surface works out at about 4.4 meters per second. So, can a human jump that fast from a standing start? Well, the world record for a standing high jump is 1.65 meters. And was set in 1900 by Ray Yuri. Now, assuming that his centre of mass only moved up by about 0.65 meters, then the speed at the start of his jump was around 3.6 meters per second, and we'll take that as the fastest a human can propel themselves upwards. So, unless asteroid Ian Morrison is a little less dense than we assumed, it doesn't look possible to escape by jumping. More questions next month. See you then.